0: What is the role of the Supreme Court? When was it created? And how does it all work? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. week we're reviewing the highest court in the land yep the supreme court all opinions and dissents will be released at the end of the lesson i'm just kidding but supreme court opinions and dissents are integral parts in determining whether or not the court is voting in favor or against a piece of legislation we've seen this firsthand with roe v wade brown v board of education and loving v virginia just to name a few landmark cases so how are cases presented to the supreme court Do justices have any responsibilities other than hearing and deciding cases? And what does the process of releasing opinions look like? Here to talk me through all of this is the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, author of The Supreme Court, The Personalities and Rivalries That Defined America, and host of the We the People podcast, Jeffrey Rosen. Jeff joins me now. Jeff, what's going on?
1: Great to be with you. So excited to talk about the Constitution and the Supreme Court.
0: Not as excited as I am, Jeff. (laughs) Um, You know, it's so exciting because we're talking about the highest court in the land. And this is topical because the court is reviewing a few things, one of the biggest being Biden's student loan debt forgiveness plan. But let's take a step back from the politics for a second and just break down how it all works. What is the role of the Supreme Court?
1: Well, let's look at the Constitution. Uh, The Supreme Court is created by Article 3 of the Constitution, which says that the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court, as well as other inferior courts that Congress has the power to create. So, What does the Supreme Court do? Well, its main job is to interpret the Constitution and to interpret laws and treaties. And If a law conflicts with the Constitution, then the Supreme Court's job is to strike it down as unconstitutional, and we know that because another part of the Constitution, which is called the Supremacy Clause in Article Six, says that the Constitution is the Supreme Law of the land. Mm. So that's the basic idea. If there's a clash between the Supreme Law of the land, which is the Constitution, and the temporary law of the land, which is a law passed by Congress or by the States, then you have to prefer the Supreme Law to the temporary law and strike down the unconstitutional act
0: right so the constitution established the supreme court but it does allow congress to decide how to organize it correct
1: yes it does uh it, we heard that c- congress has the power to create inferior courts and congress also has the power to change the number of justices which it's done a bunch of times right. in american history and uh but what it can't do um once a Judges appointed, an Article Three judge. They have life tenure for good behavior. That means as long as they're not impeached, and uh, Congress can't remove you without an impeachment proceeding. But it can reorganize the courts in all sorts of ways.
0: Right? Was that part of the Judiciary Act of 1789? Is that the one? If I'm got to go, I got to dust off my history book.
1: <laughs> the, the, the Judiciary Act. You're absolutely right. Was the the first one to kind of organize the courts? Um, but Congress started to fiddle with the size of the court after the election of 1800. Basically, Mm. the outgoing Federalists are trying to keep out any Jefferson appointments, and they reduce the size of the Supreme Court and basically prevent it from sitting for two years because they don't want it to uh, hear any cases. And then Jefferson comes in and he appoints more justices and, and brings it back to its normal number.
0: How did we get to that nine number? Why nine?
1: Um, An odd number is considered good because you don't have ties, so it's it's, um, on on a multi-member court, you don't want even numbers. Uh, But it didn't settle into nine until after the Civil War. It was originally around six and then it went up. um, At some point, to um, hovering around nine, I I think it may have gone up to 10 at one point, Um, but it was after the Civil War that it settled into nine and it's remained there ever since.
0: So judges, Jeff, as we know, they hear cases around the country every day. Um, What qualifies a case to get sent to the Supreme Court?
1: The main criteria that the court uses in deciding whether to accept a case for review is if there's a disagreement among the lower federal courts. That's called a circuit split. And if, say, the appellate court in New York disagrees with the appellate court in Georgia on an important constitutional issue, then the Supreme Court's likely to step in, so it can ensure a uniformity of laws. Mm-hmm. There's a very narrow category of cases that the court has to take that's called its original jurisdiction, but the overwhelming majority of the cases are ones that the justices choose to accept because they think it raises an important question of federal law or not. And These days, the court is not hearing all that many cases, between 60 and 80 cases a year. Um, It it, uh, receives many, many more petitions for review, they're called. And as a result, uh, the justices just hear a handful of cases and declare important principles of federal law.
0: So what do they do when they're not hearing those cases? What what does their day-to-day look like?
1: Well, most of their day, um, while the court sits, which is between October and June of most years, uh, takes the form of reading briefs, and writing draft opinions, and talking with their law clerks, and and um, uh, while the court is sitting twice a week, there are private conferences that the court hears. Those are the conferences both where they decide which cases to hear, they review what's called the petitions for certiorari, which is a fancy word for asking the court to hear your case, and then the most important thing they do together is decide cases, and that's in a private conference that's really important, and we can talk about that if you like.
0: Yeah, let's talk about it. Break it down for me.
1: Okay, so um, the justices meet entirely by themselves. There are no law clerks, no secretaries, no other guests, uh, no uh, easy electronics permitted if they're in the room, or at least there they weren't... Uh, they didn't use them and if there was an important message from outside, there'd be a knock at the door and the junior justice would answer it and you you get the message. Um, But the, the most important thing to know about the conference is the way the court decides cases. So They're all sitting around this beautiful conference table outside the Chief Justice's office, which is the private conference room, and they discuss cases in order of seniority. The chief speaks first, he's considered most senior, and then uh, the next most senior justice would be Justice Clarence Thomas, who's been on the court the longest, all the way down to the most junior justice right now, Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And after they've all gone around the table and basically said what they think of the case and whether which way they're inclined to vote, then they tally up the votes. It takes five votes at the Supreme Court to have a majority. If the Chief Justice is in the majority, then he can either write the opinion himself, or assign it to the justice who best reflects his views. If he's in the minority, then the senior associate justice in the majority—these uh, days it might be most likely the, the most senior liberal justice, uh, whose justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor can either write the decision herself or assign it to the justice who best reflects her views. So she's a kind of shadow chief if she's in the majority, and 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 then. The justices go back to their chambers and the person who's supposed to write the draft opinion will circulate a draft. And then the justices have to vote. And if they continue to agree with the disposition, they say, please join me, which is a, a funny way of saying <laughs> I join your opinion. Um and, and then once again, if there if there are five votes, then the opinion can issue. Now, sometimes a justice will ask for some changes before he or she gives her final vote and you have to go back and forth there are a whole bunch of drafts um very occasionally the majority will flip after the original majority circulates one of the justices you know split case can change his or her mind and 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 the decision goes the other way but that really doesn't happen very often and once it's ready to go the majority is ready then there c- c- might also be a, a dissent as well as a concurrence a concurrence is a justice who agrees with the holding of the majority, but on slightly different grounds, and wants to write a separate statement for, for why they go to the way they did.
0: Okay, so they agree, people... but it's for a different reason.
1: Exactly. Uh, remember in the uh, Dobbs case, uh, which overturned Roe v. Wade last year, there was an important concurrence with, by Chief Justice John Roberts. He agreed that the law in question should be upheld, but on different grounds. He didn't want to overturn Roe v. Wade. He he had a narrower Way of deciding it that would have avoided that question. So, so he's concurring in the result, but not in the reasoning of the opinion, and that's a pretty significant difference.
0: Okay, so you know, you, you bring up the word dissent. So, when someone disagrees with the majority uh, opinion, so what then happens when a Supreme Court justice dissents?
1: Well, they they file the dissent, which most importantly sets out their reasons for dissenting. They both say, "I don't like the result here, and here's why." And Some of the most famous Supreme Court opinions in all of history have been dissents because sometimes the reasoning that a justice will embrace in one era will be accepted by justices and citizens in future eras. Maybe the most famous dissent in Supreme Court history is Justice John Marshall Harlan's dissenting opinion in Plessy versus Ferguson. That was the case in 1896 that upheld segregation. It said it was okay to have Separate railroad cars for black and white people um, at, at the height at, at the height of the Jim Crow era. And Harlan wrote a inspiring dissenting opinion saying our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. Justice Thurgood Marshall read Harlan's dissent aloud to inspire himself before he argued the great case of Brown versus Board of Education. Brown struck down segregation in schools in 1954 and the justices in Brown were inspired by Harlan's dissent.
0: Wow. Yeah, I mean, when you see something like that, it can be so powerful. Um, I want to quickly go back because uh, you bring up Chief Justice John Roberts. How was it decided that he would be Chief Justice?
1: He was appointed by President George W. Bush when Chief Justice uh, William Rehnquist uh, I, I, he 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 passed away. He he, he died of, uh, of, of of cancer, and the seat was vacant. And in in some sense, the decision to replace a chief is the same as a decision to replace an associate justice, in the sense that the president can appoint anyone he or she likes. He he could have promoted someone from within the Supreme Court. He could have made one of the existing justices chief justice, or he could go outside as he did with John Roberts and appoint someone. Who was not uh, a justice but was serving on an appellate court? Um, It's kind of been split about how many of the chiefs throughout history have been promoted from within. I I think most have not been. Uh, There have been uh, 16 or 17 uh, chiefs throughout American history. Obviously, a a hugely important role, uh, which we can talk about actually. uh, What what exactly does the chief do? That was my next question well, well, let's let's talk about that yeah. because it's it's such an important question. So in terms of voting, the Chief just has one vote along with all the other justices. So he or she has no more power to influence the ultimate disposition of a case than anyone else. His main power is the one we talked about. When he's in the majority, he can either write the opinion himself or assign it to the justice who best reflects his views. That's a really important strategic role, too, because say there's a justice a little bit on the fence, and you think they might, jump ship and and go to the other side, you might want to assign the opinion to them. Or if Chief Justice Roberts, as we've seen he does, wants to write an opinion more narrowly uh, to ensure that it is more likely to gain unanimity, then he may take it for himself uh, to prevent another justice from going uh, more uh, broadly. Um, And That's going to be his main power moving forward on this court, is the power to write the opinion a little more narrowly than some of his colleagues might want. Um, he's also the head of the judicial branch, so he has important administrative responsibilities. There's something called the Judicial Conference that uh, coordinates the work of the lower federal courts. and He has ceremonial roles as well, most famously as we all know swearing in the president and presiding over an impeachment trial, and, and that's in the Constitution that he has to do that. But um, The 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 main uh, procedural uh, duties are the ones we've talked about, and 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 also at the conference because he speaks first, he can try to frame the case in a way that's most likely to win the appointment, the agreement of his colleagues. When Chief Justice Roberts began his service, he said that he wanted to make his model, Chief Justice John Marshall, one of the greatest Chief Justices, who created unanimity, who persuaded his colleagues to live together in the same boarding house. They drank Madeira wine and they all got buzzed and all the cases were unanimous. and and Chief Justice Roberts thought it was good for the country to have narrow unanimous opinions that didn't divide on partisan lines. and He said he was going to try to encourage that as Chief Justice. Now, as we all know, uh, since uh, justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was replaced by Justice Barrett. This court is dividing quite strongly on partisan lines in a, in a couple of most uh, high-profile cases, most most notably the Dobbs case. Mm-hmm. And their Chief Justice Roberts was unable to get any other justice to join his concurring opinion, which would have decided the case more narrowly and and not formally overturned Roe. So in the end, his his powers are limited by whether his colleagues are willing to go along with him. And if they're not, then he basically loses his power. In, in in those six to three cases or cases where uh, Chief Chief Justice Roberts wants to decide a case more narrowly than his colleagues, then Justice Clarence Thomas effectively has the power of the chief because he's the one uh, who can assign the majority opinion. He, he's the one whose opinion actually has the votes. Um, it reminds us that the chief's power is very much contingent on the Particular makeup of the court at any one time, and uh, moving forward, Chief Justice Roberts may find it difficult to find adherence to his judicial vision.
0: All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this.
2: Hey, folks, it's your man Keyshawn Johnson here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie?
0: This is kind of a random tangent, but I would like to ask you how I know you don't know the answer to this because I, don't, I believe investigators didn't even find out who did it. But what happens um, when an opinion is leaked? How does that how does that happen?
1: Well, we don't know how it happened because there was a big investigation and the investigator right. said, we don't know how it happened. So, <laughs> so which so is well, crazy
0: I... <laughs> because you would think that there would be someone who knows something who is willing to talk.
1: You'd think so, but they, <laughs> the court's internal investigation, which was run by the court's uh, marshals and security officers, were not able to identify the leaker, and they issued a report to that effect.
0: I see. Well, maybe one day. My mom always says, someone always tells, so maybe <laughs> maybe uh-huh. one of these days we'll find out. Um You know, we we did another podcast on this, so you don't have to go too into the weeds, but can you just walk me through the basics of how a Supreme Court justice is appointed from the nomination to the confirmation and ultimately leading to the appointment of that justice?
1: Yes, uh, 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 the Constitution gives the president the power to appoint judges and justices by and with the advice and consent of the Senate. So that means that the president will nominate someone and the Senate has the power to say yes or no, or not to hold a hearing at all, as we saw um, with uh, Judge Merrick Garland, who was, who was nominated to replace Justice Antonin Scalia, but but never got a, a hearing on his nomination. Um, in recent years, and this is very much a post-war twentieth-century phenomenon, we have confirmation hearings. In the 19th century, there weren't really meaningful public healings, hearings. Justice Louis Brandeis, uh, who was appointed by President Woodrow Wilson, uh, was the first to have hearings, although he didn't testify at them. Uh, Felix Frankfurter um, had, had some informal testimony, but the the spectacle of the modern confirmation hearings with TV cameras and testimony and witnesses, really didn't get up and running until the 1960s, uh, post Thurgood Marshall, uh, 1970s, and then the whole thing exploded after the failed nomination of Robert Bork in 1986, which really seemed to mark the beginning of the polarization of our judicial politics in a big way. That was all on TV, and then we, we know the many dramatic confirmation hearings that have taken place after that um generally there there is a vote uh, at the moment the filibuster for um supreme court nominations no longer exists so you just need a majority of the senate to to get through and in recent years we're we're seeing very very close partisan votes and once the senate approves the nomination by a majority vote then the justice is uh, sworn in and has life tenure as a member of the U.S. Supreme Court.
0: Mm-hmm. You know it's interesting because the confirmation hearings are televised, but nothing within the Supreme Court can be televised, right? You, you mentioned no media, no electronic devices. It's very old school in that way.
1: It really is. Um, they're they're uh, keeping to their traditions of. Uh, not allowing electronics. The justices are concerned for different reasons about technology. Justice Antonin Scalia used to say that he would favor cameras in the courtroom, but only if citizens could basically be forced to watch the entire hearing from beginning to Mm. end. If there was like a federal marshal stationed in your home, making sure you watch on C-SPAN or whatever, because he thinks that snippets would be taken out of context. And you see these really melodramatic clips on the evening news, but they would give an inaccurate sense of the work the court actually does, most of which is technical lawyers work, not very partisan, not very political, and requires really close attention. Um, Other justices just like their privacy. They like to be able to take the metro in in Washington DC, which some of them still do, or go to the grocery store without being recognized or stopped. Um, Huge pressure, of course, on the court to open up to 20th century technology, a big change during COVID when the court started running live feeds of oral arguments, audio feeds, which it now does post COVID. It's now made that permanent and you can tune into oral arguments on the Supreme Court's website, which is a wonderful thing. And you can also get transcripts of the oral arguments hours after the whole thing is finished. So for citizens who are listening to this, it's just a great civic exercise, even if you're not a lawyer, especially if you're not a lawyer, to listen to Supreme Court arguments or read the transcripts or both and try to understand the basic arguments on both sides of a case, then follow it through. When the opinion comes down, read the majority opinion, read the dissent if there is one and the concurrence and make up your own mind. That's the wonderful thing about the Supreme Court that they're 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 justifying their reasons. it's a it's the branch of government that operates most according to reason according to its vision and and that's what it does at its best. And by evaluating the reason and, and listening to the debates that the justices have among themselves, you can use your powers of reason. It's a wonderful privilege of citizenship.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, that's part of living in a free country. It, it is a wonderful thing that we can. We do have the freedom to make our own decisions. We have the freedom of speech. So it's a good thing people can do. And I do agree that you do have to kind of listen to the whole thing because things can be taken out of context if they're in snippets, things like that. I actually heard an interesting story from one of our Washington, D.C. based photogs. He was telling me how back in the day, I guess it's still this way, but um, you have interns that would go and run, go wait on the, the steps. They would get the uh, the transcript and they would run it down to whoever is doing the show. And I think it was Shannon Bream. And, um, she did an excellent job on one of the cases and she had to flip through on live television and kind of read it and translate it from that uh, document to people who are watching at home, which is a, a special talent that is incredible to have.
1: You know, it's so true. I started covering the Supreme Court, believe it or not, In the early 1990s, I was the legal editor of the... Oh, wow. Cool. It was was right out of law school. This dream job, incredible opportunity to write about the justices in the court. And I remember the old press room and a decision would come down in the courtroom and the reporters would then run to the press room and pick up these essentially pay phones and call their editors and tell them on the phone what the court had decided reading aloud from the decision because there was no other technology. I remember lots of moments when people were trying in real time to absorb the decision, most famously after Bush v. Gore, when a bunch of folks on camera got wrong what the holding was because it wasn't immediately clear. Um, And the whole phenomenon that we have now where you don't have to go to the Supreme Court and and dress up and stay in that little reporter's alcove, which doesn't have very good views unless you're in the best seats. And now can basically any citizen could just do it on your computer and listen to the arguments and the transcripts. Total transformation in the way the court does business.
0: Yes, wow! It's it's so fun to hear those stories about what it was like back in the '90s and how it's evolved to today. It, it truly is. It's fascinating. We'll be right back after this. How long mm-hmm. are SCOTUS oral hearings? I, it probably depends on the case, but what what do they range? What's the range?
1: It does the you know the the standard is an hour. And that was what most of the cases have been. Post COVID, they seem to be going a lot longer. The, the ones this week on the student debt case were something like three hours, two, two days in a wow. row. Um, the independent state legislature arguments seem to go like six hours. So they, they really, that this is more the 19th century norm when John Quincy Adams, the former president, would stand before the Supreme Court in the Amistad case involving uh, enslaved people who were being held by the US government and um argued for days on end. So we seem to be going back to that model.
0: Right. And now I have to ask you this because it is Women's History Month. Um we have Sandra Day O'Connor, first female Supreme Court justice. What do you think her legacy is?
1: Well, as you said, a main legacy was being first uh and in addition she did it with such distinction. She was a former Arizona state legislator. She called herself a cowgirl who grew up in Arizona, (laughs) but she, for many years, was the swing justice on the court. It was called O'Connor's Court, and she had a distinctive, moderate, pragmatic approach to jurisprudence, where she often would try to find compromise and and split the difference. and, And the same way she did in the Arizona legislators, where she would have Republican and Democratic colleagues over to her house and she would cook mexican food for them and they they try to find common ground there are many important decisions she wrote especially in voting rights cases affirmative action cases abortion cases those are all campaign finance all cases where she found a middle ground and it's striking that on the current polarized court there really is no justice like that the, both the liberals and the conservatives are more extreme than she was so i don't know if you want to call her the the last moderate but mm-hmm. she was a very powerful uh, thoughtful uh, justice for many years and also a great champion of civics education
0: mm-hmm. i'm from arizona so i we we, we learned all about it. actually I, I went to grade school with her granddaughter and grandson so um, we learned about her very early on in in school so pretty neat Um, and then what about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg obviously she's another woman on the court that's left quite a legacy Um, why do you think she gained so much notoriety
1: Uh, she became an internet meme
0: she
1: she went viral in the best way after an NYU law student um, wrote a meme calling her the notorious RBG picking up after the rapper, Notorious B.I.G., after she wrote a dissenting opinion in a case called Shelby County involving the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act. Five to four uh, majority of the court basically said Congress couldn't extend the Voting Rights Act, and she wrote a blistering dissent saying just because you're not getting wet in the rain doesn't mean you throw out the umbrella. And that kind of image of this powerful older woman who defiantly speaking truth to power really took off and resonated in the country among young women and, and young people uh, who who agreed with Justice Ginsburg, and that's why she became so famous. But it's very important for us to remember, Justice Ginsburg was the most important figure for women's equality in the courts of the 20th century, a towering figure for constitutional change. When she was appointed, uh, President Clinton called her the Thurgood Marshall of women's equality comparing her crusade for women's equality in the courts in the 1970s, with that of Thurgood Marshall for racial equality in the courts in the 1950s. and It was her brilliant strategy at the ACLU Women's Rights Project to argue for an equal treatment feminism, and in a series of cases to challenge arrangements that gave preferences to men, supposedly, uh, in order to help women, but in fact, based on paternalistic stereotypes that Justice Ginsburg thought ended up hurting them in the end. For example, she challenged a welfare law that that gave survivors benefits to surviving widows, but not widowers. In other words, uh, there was a man, his wife had died, who was trying to care for their infant son, and he couldn't get survivors benefits because the law presumed that a man wouldn't need them. And Justice Ginsburg challenged that exclusion. Because she said the paternalistic attempt to help women actually was based on this idea that they, um, you know, couldn't have equal treatment in the workplace and ended up harming this woman's son. And she won that case, which was called Weisenfeld. There were a whole bunch of cases like that where she argued for this very inspiring vision of, of gender-blind constitutionalism. And on the Supreme Court, her most famous opinion along these lines was the Virginia Military Institute case, where she struck down. Virginia military's um, exclusion of women and said that a state-run institution has to admit women and men on equal terms and can't create a separate academy for women. Just uh, in addition to all that, she was an inspiring example of self-discipline and focus and purpose beloved by conservative as well as liberal colleagues, famously with her friendship with Justice Antonin Scalia, where they bonded over opera and and good food and, and were great friends despite their jurisprudential disagreements. and She is one of the great justices in the history of the
0: court. Yeah, it is nice to see people get along outside of the court. You know, you know they have different opinions, but that's what our country's all about, is differing opinions coming together and and finding common ground. So why does, this is a a different topic completely, but why does SCOTUS release decisions in the late spring slash early summer?
1: Well, they basically release the decisions when they're done, and their term traditionally ends at, around the end of June, sometimes the first week in July, and like all of us, the justices kind of write to deadlines, so they save the really com- tough stuff until the end, and that's why the most controversial cases tend to come out at the end of June. You know, sometimes you'll you'll get them in the middle of the year, especially if they're argued earlier in the year. But um, a decision issues as soon as everyone signs off on it, that, and then and many of them have summer plans, so they want to stay in. DC for too long, but they tend to wrap up by the beginning of July. Uh,
0: well, it's probably a good thing because spring and early summer is when people are really happy. So, <laughs> <laughs> if they if they're upset about the the decision, or if they they could be extra happy about the decision.
2: Um, Absolutely.
0: Yeah, Jeff. Last question I have for you, and then I'll I'll let you go because I've I've kept you here. Um, what do you think we should look out for in the upcoming months from the Supreme Court?
1: Well, the blockbuster of the year is likely to be the affirmative action cases, uh, challenges to Harvard and University of North Carolina's affirmative action policies, where most observers expect that the court will strike down affirmative action uh, by uh, a divided vote. And Then uh, just this week, uh, as we mentioned, the court heard a really important challenge to President Biden's student debt relief program. Uh, there's also an extremely interesting case involving the future of the internet and whether or not companies like Google and Twitter are immune for illegal content that their algorithms promote. There's important religious liberty cases involving a web designer who doesn't want to post stuff involving gay marriages because she has not approval of, of gay marriages. And there is also a very important case involving something called the independent state legislature doctrine, which essentially raises the question of how much oversight of state legislative election decisions courts can make. It could be hugely consequential for presidential elections if the court says that courts can't supervise the decisions at all, and there will be a lot of interest in that case as well.
0: All right. Well, a lot to look forward to. And I'm sure as things unfold, we might have to have you back on.
1: That would be great. It's so great to talk with you about the court. And I just want to say again how how great it is that listeners are, are learning about it and just accept that great responsibility of mm. citizenship. Read the arguments on both sides. Recognize there are good arguments on both sides of most Supreme Court cases, regardless of how you feel about a case politically. Open yourself up to the possibility that you might reach a legal conclusion that differs from your policy point of view. and I'll just put in a plug for the amazing resources of the National Constitution Center with our We the People podcast, our interactive constitution that brings together top liberal and conservative scholars to debate every clause of the Constitution, Constitution 101 videos. It's just such an honor to be a nonpartisan center for constitutional education and hope your listeners will check us out.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jeff, for joining me on Getting Schooled. And just a reminder to everyone, Jeff just said it, but he is the host of We the People podcast. So check him out as well uh, if you want to hear more from Jeff. I appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. If you missed anything from class, these are my office hours. And here are some top takeaways about the Supreme Court. Number one. If you're ever wondering why the court has nine justices, it's to ensure there aren't ties when voting. There doesn't have to be a specific number of conservative or liberal justices, there just has to be an odd number. Number two, the chief justice is at the swearing of the president and also presides over impeachment trials. The chief justice is appointed by the president and he or she can either be promoted from within or they can be brought in from the outside. And number three, Jeff mentions that this is the only branch of government that operates according to reason. Article 3 of the Constitution established the federal judiciary, and the Supreme Court is part of that. So it is its duty to uphold the Constitution. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on the Supreme Court. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.
2: From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times,
1: you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time.
2: Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.